Hello everyone and welcome to episode 275 of the Ask the Coach show where Ping Skills helps you improve your table tennis. In this episode we'll have our regular segments, the tip of the week, the drill of the week and the tournament roundup and of course we'll answer plenty of your questions. I'm Jeff Plum and to help me do that I'm joined by super coach Alois Rosario. Welcome Alois. Uh, thank you, Jeff, and um, slightly different format today, Jeff. Yes, indeed. We're, we're going back to our audio podcast, so we used to do this as sort of a video and an audio podcast, but, you know, I think a lot of people thought that the video wasn't that entertaining, so we changed the format and we went to a video version, which we're now calling the Ping Skills Show, but we thought some people still like the podcast, so this is back to the audio podcast for those people, so we'll still have... The Ask the Coach show, which will be the audio podcast, and we'll have the Ping Skills show, which will be the video version of that. So uh, hopefully the, that's not too confusing. Uh, the best of both worlds, basically. That's a- great. Absolutely. The best of both worlds, yeah. So um, as always, you'll be able to keep up to date with everything on pingskills.com. We'll put all of these episodes up on the blog, so keep checking back there to make sure you don't miss anything. Yeah. So, Alois, the tournament roundup is quite interesting. Um, it's the European Teams Championships qualification. What does that even mean? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I hadn't really heard much about it before. But um, so the European Championships um, has a teams event and they're, they're doing a qualification uh, tournament for that over a period of two years. Um, so... Uh, some of those matches are on at the moment. Um, basically, what they're what they're doing with the qualification is that they're competing for the right to play in the championship division or the challenge division um, of those events. So currently, um, yeah. So there's there's matches on. So it's broken up into into groups uh, basically. So the um, in the uh, men's um, championship division um at the moment uh, the top group has austria hungary and denmark in it and austria squeezed out a win against hungary 3-2 um the other day so that was uh that was a big result for austria against hungary um and i think um the other interesting part is that some of these matches now that they are live streaming so w- when we get an opportunity and we uh get notification of them we will uh put a link on our Facebook page as well. So um, some good matches to watch um, in in those qualifications events. Um, what did I see the other day? I saw a little bit of the uh, the match of uh, England versus Greece, um, and that was that was really entertaining. In that match again, a tough um, battle with England getting up against Greece three two in the last match. They were down match points and uh, and managed to to get home. So um, you know, and we know England did so well at the world championships recently and, you know, just squeezing out a win against Greece. So yeah, they they seem to be, they seem to be good England in those tight matches. Yeah. They win a lot of them, don't they? That's right. Certainly. Um, Yeah. So, um, yeah, I like, I like the concept and, um, it also just, um, increases the profile of table tennis across the couple of years, especially in Europe where I think it's really needed now over the next couple of years. Um, so if you get an opportunity to uh, to see some of those matches um, streamed live, get on and have a look. And uh, and the presentation was also pretty good. Yeah, so the England-Greece match looked like it was in, <coughs> in a stadium. 
and they had um, you know the tiered seating, um, everyone sitting on one side. I reckon they would have had you know close to a thousand people there watching the match, um, and uh, you know well well set up, professionally done, uh, looked quite good in the presentation. So um, it's what we need. We need more of that. So well, E T T U European Table Tennis Union um, for getting that up and going. Yeah, that sounds good. And um, when do we know, like, which teams will be in the uh, championship division? Is that what it's called, as opposed to the lower division? Yeah. Yeah, um, so the last qualification match is until the 7th of March next year. So so there's a bit of a way off, but um, they're quite well spaced. So there's another round on the 22nd of November. Uh, so in that, we see... Uh, we see uh, Denmark versus Hungary in the men's, uh, Switzerland versus Serbia, um, Finland, Italy, Israel, Croatia, uh, Estonia, Slovakia, Lithuania, Ukraine, uh, Netherlands, England, uh, Slovenia, Belgium, and Bulgaria and Spain. And there's also Turkey and Romania. So, yeah, so, yeah, as I say, interest, interesting matches. And But I, I like the fact that they are live streaming um, some of these. Um, so we as the public get to watch a little bit more of these, these guys. And, and again, you know, learn a little bit more about how they play. Yeah, certainly. So, yeah, get on board and watch some of these live streaming events. Yeah, it's good. And, um, yeah, and I like the concept of, you know, um, separating them out so that the the top teams play off for, you know, to become European champions. Um, it's just similar to how they do that in the world with different divisions. Um, I think it's good. Absolutely. Yeah, so well done. And um, we'll keep you posted if there's any more... Uh more happening in that area. Excellent. Now, Alois, it has been a while since we've done one of these uh, shows in this format, and, you know, I'm not sure whether this was popular or not, but there was a, you know, a segment called, you know, On This Day, um, where you often talked about birthdays or famous events. I was humongously popular, (laughs) Jeff. (laughs) All right, well, we're putting putting it in the show, so what have you got for us today? Well, sort of, yeah. I mean, we're uh, we're going to make it a little bit more relevant. So, um, because we're not doing this every day, I've gone back to the first of November and um, to Ai Fukuhara's birthday. So, Ai Fukuhara, um, you know, one of the real legends of uh, Japanese table tennis, and I think you know she has been the the player that has turned Japanese table tennis around. Um, she's one made it more popular, but also she's dragged the level up um, uh, since 2004. So she she started playing table tennis at the age of three and became professional at ten, which is which is sounds pretty incredible to me. But she is an absolute superstar in Japan. You know there are there are statues erected to her as well. Um, but um, probably where I crossed paths with uh, with I Fukuhara was in 2004 when she played at. Uh, at her first Olympics in Athens. And funnily enough, her first match was against uh, Miao Miao from Australia, and I was coaching Miao in that match. And I Fukuhara scraped through 11-9 in the seventh match, and I remember how devastated um, 
we were all all were that uh, Meow had just gone down in seven games to Ai Fukuhara, but uh, but we did know that she was a sensation as well, and a, a sensation that was really waiting to happen at that time. Wow, so, what an amazing experience! Yeah, absolutely, absolutely, yeah, and uh, you know just so mature at that age as well. Um, you know, Meow wasn't overly old at that uh, at that time, but uh, but she seemed old compared to uh, Fukuhara. Yes, indeed. So, yeah, she was born in 88, so she would have been only 15, turning 16. Yeah. 16, that's right, exactly. Yep. Wow. So, uh, yeah, pretty young to be competing at your first uh, first Olympics. Um, she she also went on to beat uh, Gao Jun from the US. So Gao Jun was a former Chinese national player um, um, at, a, at a very high level, and she beat Gao Jun 4-0 in, in the next round. And then went down to uh, Kim Kyung Ah from uh, South Korea for one. Um, so yeah, so pretty stellar performance in her first Olympics. But indeed. Um, indeed. But, but there you go. See, I Fukuhara's birthday, the first of November, and isn't that an interesting segment? <laughs> pretty interesting. Yeah, anything <laughs> else interesting happen uh, in in this week in history? Well, yeah. Well, for. for us Australians, um, the Melbourne Cup uh, was run for the first time today in 1861. So the Melbourne Cup um, is probably our biggest uh, uh, horse. Well, it's not not probably. It's definitely our biggest horse race in Australia, and it's one of the biggest sporting uh, events in Australia and a very sporting nation. Uh, in Aus- in Melbourne, we even get a holiday for the Melbourne Cup. Can you a, believe that? A public holiday for a horse race. It's amazing. Absolutely. It is. It is. So yeah. So the first, the first of the Melbourne Cups was run in 1861, and, and it was actually today, the 7th of November. Now I don't know a lot about horse racing, even though we get the public holiday for it. But I always find it um, a bit strange because the Melbourne Cup is what they call a handicap race. So they, you know, look at the horses and say, well, this horse is too fast, so the jockey's got to wear extra weight to slow the horse down. So they're trying to even up the field. And to me, that's kind of weird that our biggest horse race is like a handicap event. It would be like having the World Championships in table tennis, but saying, hold on, when you play Ma Long, Ma Long's got to give the other person, you know, a 10-point head start to even things up. Doesn't make sense. For once, we agree, Jeffrey. Absolutely. (laughs) It is. It's really weird to me that, that, that... that a handicapper decision can uh, can basically decide uh, the fate of the Melbourne Cup, whereas there are other races, and I know nothing about horse racing either, but um, that are weight for age. So it depends on your age about as to how much you actually carry on your back. Much better system, or some yeah something like that is much better than just an arbitrary handicap system. Yeah, imagine imagine Marlong with sandbags on his on his feet. <laughs> exactly, it's crazy. Well, maybe we should actually try that because it might bring him back to the field. <laughs> yeah, maybe. <laughs> maybe. All right, well, there you go. Interesting segment, um, as always. As, as always, Jeff, that's right, as always. <laughs> okay, cool. All right, well, let's move on to the tip of the week. Alois, what gem do you have for us uh, for this week? Yeah, so my... Tip of the week this week is is regarding your training. So we often practice short play um, by you know just pushing short uh, push to push. 
my tip for this week is to you to do that more off the serve and the return of serve because when you're serving short or when you're returning off a short ball off a serve there's always some different spin to deal with so it's very rare in table tennis that we play more than one or two pushes just off a straight backspin ball we're always dealing with that short play off the serve, which has some side spin or some side and back or side and top um, to to deal with um, in a game situation. But our practice doesn't always reflect that. So my tip of the week is whenever you're practicing short play now, start it off with a little bit of side spin with a serve, with side spin and different spins, and just start to get used to the feel of that different um, uh, touch that you need to keep that ball short off different subtle spins. Yeah, that, that makes a lot of sense because, as you said, you know, in a game, uh, you're often going to use this off a short ball and there's not going to be heaps of short balls. So it's just making your training more game-like. Absolutely. Make it more relevant and make it look more like a game. Dr. Ross Pinder's words keep echoing in my ear. <laughs> the skills acquisition specialist. That's right, yeah. So Dr. Ross Pinder... Uh, from South Australia in, um, or in Adelaide, um, in Adelaide in South Australia. Um, yeah, he's done a lot of work with our Paralympic squad and uh, and that's one of his big, big themes with training, to make it relevant and make it look like a game. Excellent. All right, so get out on the table this week and practice your short play off a serve and off return of serve. Excellent. All right, now let's move on to the drill of the week then, Alois. What is the drill of the week? Yeah, so uh, so the drill of the week is practicing your backhand opener. So I, I find a lot of players come to me and say, you know, I'm improving my game, but in a match situation, they're just pushing it and digging it long into my backhand and um, and I'm not able to cope with it. So firstly, the, the, the most important thing is how are you going to improve that backhand opener? So the backhand opener meaning your backhand topspin off that first backspin ball to convert the rally from backspin to topspin. So a, a simple way to start with uh, with this and a simple drill to start with is to serve the ball short, get your partner to push the ball long into your backhand um, all the time to you. So by doing that, you know where the ball's coming, you can set yourself and you can make that backhand topspin uh, or practice that backhand topspin stroke. But as a next step, and this is a really important step, after after them pushing all the time long to your backhand, get them to then start to push perhaps 80% of balls to your backhand and 20% to your forehand. So by doing that, now you're starting to have to read the where the ball's coming to um, and read your opponent's push. So you're still getting your 80% of practice with that backhand topspin, um, off the backspin ball, but you're also needing to cope with the decision making uh, between where that ball's coming to. So, uh, so the backhand topspin off backspin ball is is an important thing to practice. But to make it more relevant again and put and get it into your game quicker, then add in that uh, that option of the eighty twenty option, eighty percent to your backhand, twenty percent to your forehand. Yeah, I like this one a lot. Um, it really 
takes your game to a whole new level once you can top spin off both sides because then you, you, there's nowhere that your opponent can push that you can't still attack it. If you, There's nowhere they can push long that you still can't attack it. So it really is you know, an important skill to learn. Now, interestingly, Alloys, the, some players seem to find the backhand topspin harder to learn. And we've kind of talked about this before. It's maybe not that it's harder to learn. It's maybe that they just practice the forehand more because they think it's a more natural stroke. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, we have discussed this before. And, and, you, and I, think, I think you're right there too, Jeff. Um, I think it's just something that we don't practice enough of. Um, and But, you know, having said that now, I think players around the world are utilising their backhand more effectively um, and more efficiently and more often as well. Um, so I think it's, you know, definitely becoming a more relevant stroke. And it's a stroke that now that you really need to have to have to uh, develop in your game. Yeah. So... I've I've noticed that too. Yeah, players, especially with the backhand side spin banana flick, um, people are stepping across and using their backhand from even from the forehand side. So that does expose their backhand a lot more. But as you said, they're practicing that backhand and they're just really good at playing top spins on that backhand side. Do you think it's important to you know practice your backhand as much as your forehand? Um, I th- I think nowadays I think it's pretty close. You know, like. You know, if it's not 50-50, it's, you know, 60-40 um, or something like that. Um, so, yeah, I think I think now we do need to develop your, uh, a player's backhand um, almost equally as much. Mm, interesting. Interesting. All right. So, everyone, that's the drill of the week. Get out there and uh, practice that backhand opener. And remember that tip about, you know, once you've started that opener and you're getting okay with it, Get them to push twenty percent of your forehand just to keep it more more relevant, as uh, as the skills acquisition coach would say. Doctor Ross, <laughs> Doctor Ross Pinder, excellent. All right, um, now I think it's time for the questions. Alloys, are you ready? Oh, I certainly am. Excellent. I, I, I hope you got some good ones for me. I certainly do. Good. So, so first up is a question from David, and he said. Recently, I've been introducing family members and friends to the game, just casually asking them to join me and go outside and play for fun. Maybe it's a bit odd to ask, but how do you guys play against new players? Do you let them have the point and fake missing? He goes, I just want them to experience how fun table tennis is and playing against someone who is much better might put them off a little bit. What are your thoughts here, Alois? Yeah. So this, I think, David, really depends on your... Um, opponent or the person at the other end of the table. So it's not about uh, how we feel. It's more about how they feel. So some players will want you to just smack them and, and to and to beat them really easily because they just want to see uh, where they're really at and what, what um, their relevant skills are like. Whereas others will look at you in in horror if you start smacking balls past them and think that you're just being um, a, a smarty. So um, it really does depend on your opponent. Um, and I, I think it's just a matter of, you know, you gauging 
uh, that from the from the game. You know, um, you might hit one past them and just see what their reaction is. You know, if they look at you and sort of you know almost turn their nose up, then maybe you need to go a bit easier um, to to allow them to uh, to have a good experience with the game. Or um, you know that you might smack one past them and they just they're just absolutely in awe and they. they love it and they, they just want to learn how to do that and learn some more so so it's really about um, you know that individual person and how they deal with uh, getting the beating I suppose yeah it certainly is um, yeah it's an interesting question and, I, and I, it is important though isn't it like it's good that David's thinking about this because you want people to have fun so they keep coming back and keep playing exactly yeah so you certainly don't want to uh, to to beat them easily if they're just demoralised and never play the, want to play the game again. Um, you know, you, you're talking about you know, their family members and, you know, you, you want to try and encourage them. Um, so definitely, you know, you need to, uh, to make it as, as um, interesting for them as possible uh, so that they are, they are interested in table tennis and you're just dangling that carrot in front of them of what's possible as well. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, I like that that phrase, dangling the carrot. Because, yeah, people who haven't played much before might be super surprised by just how much spin reacts off bats and, you know, that might really encourage them to, you know, look at the game further. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Good question, David. All right, let's move on to another one from Brandon. And Brandon says, I felt it is quite impossible to chop back and hard to catch the ball, and if I manage to chop, it will fly out of the table. When the opponent gives a super topspin, returning my backspin, so not a normal topspin, like a really heavy topspin. And he says, I can chop it back if the opponent gives a normal, but if they do this super spinny one, it's it's hard. And he says he's got smooth rubber on both sides. So do you have any suggestions for Brandon on chopping you know, really heavy topspin shots with these smooth rubber? Yeah, so it, it is quite difficult because the, the heavy spin, when it hits your racket, will shoot straight up. Um, so what you need to be doing is uh, being able to keep that ball down. So your stroke there needs to be really vertical, so coming straight down um, on on the ball when you're chopping it. So if you um, imagine that uh, that chop stroke, you know, starting up at your ear and finishing down at your, your knee – that stroke needs to come straight downwards. If you if you push forward at all, that ball is going to fly up and off your bat and uh, and go up really high. So that's the first thing. Get that stroke coming really vertical, vert- vertically downwards. The second thing is to keep your your hand quite soft and relaxed to to absorb some of the speed and spin on the ball. Um, again, if you've got a hard contact on it. Um, then the ball's going to fly. If you've got a softer hand, softer contact on it, then you're going to be able to control that ball a little bit better. But it is a, it is a difficult stroke to do um, with the, with the uh, normal rubber. And that's why a lot of choppers do utilise um, long pimple or anti-spin on one side of their racket to be able to deal with that sort of ball. Um, with the long pimple it's so much easier to control that ball and keep it down um rather than the ball flying up off the inverted rubber yeah because the long pimple kind of in a way absorbs the spin or, or kind of um or do, the ball doesn't react off it as much yeah yeah now yeah it a... certainly absorbs the speed 
Yes. And so um, that's good advice with the vertical. What about the speed of the stroke? Do you need to come down fast or slow? Or what, what are some tips with you know how fast you're moving your bat to try and counter that with a smooth rubber? Yeah, um, it doesn't matter too much. It's more because, I mean, if you come down faster, then you can generate a little bit more spin on the ball yourself. Um, I think initially just come down nice and slowly and and really try to feel that ball um, back onto the table and just get the feel of where that, um, uh, how how high that ball is going to go up off your bat as well. All right, excellent. Great advice. Hopefully that helps you out, Brandon. All right, next question is from Philip. He says, hello, coaches. It's Philip here again with another question. He says, I can't find any rule that covers a carry during a return stroke. The carrying I'm asking about is similar to the carry in tennis, where the ball is carried on the racket for a moment rather than a straight rebound off the racket. He said, I saw this uh, one for the first time today, and he wants to know, is it legal? Yeah, so, um, so Philip, the... It it wasn't. It certainly wasn't at all previously, uh, because if you hit the ball more than once um, in a stroke, then you lost the point straight away. Whereas now um, there's a new rule that adds the word deliberately with the with the two hits or the or the more than one hit. So um, it, the the new rule says if an opponent deliberately strikes the ball twice in succession, then they lose the point basically. Um, so if they've made a one swing through um, and they're not deliberately trying to hit, catch the ball or carry the ball, then it would be okay. Um, you will get away with it nowadays. So, um, yeah, so with that, with that neural that was just brought in oh, a year or two ago at the most, um, then um, it, it is legal to do the carry. But, I mean, it's pretty hard to do. It's pretty hard to do if you're trying to do it anyway. So um, so most of the time you're going to get away with it. Yeah, interesting. And, yeah, it's, uh, when you keep saying new rule, I was wondering, yeah, how long has that rule been in? But, yeah, not that long, I guess. But, um, yeah. yeah, I think it's, it is a good rule. It just simplifies things for the umpires. You know, if you just have one swing through, then it's just play on. I, I really like this new rule. Yeah, and the, the reason it was brought in was... Yeah, there was there was always conjecture because if the ball hit your finger and your bat, it was in theory a double hit, um, and you know you should lose the point. The, but the if it hits your fight, finger only, then that's okay. It was okay. That's right. Yes. So how exactly. do you judge that? But the the honest players, yeah, that's right. Yeah, the honest players were sort of giving the, the point up, you know. If it hit their finger, just slightly hit their finger in their bat, it's pretty hard to tell. And they were giving away the point, whereas other players weren't. So it was just uh, creating more hassle than it was worth. So, yeah, so I do like the new rule as well, Jeff. Excellent. All right. Well, thanks for the question, Philip. And so, yep, it is legal as long as it's uh, not done deliberately and then just in one swing. All right, next question is from Daniel. And Daniel says... It seems like choppers and modern defenders use the backhand serve disproportionately more than attackers. Do you agree? And if so, why do you think it is? And he also says, why do you think there are almost zero left-handed defenders? Hmm, yeah, what are your thoughts on this, Alois? So, um, so with the first point, um, Daniel, of the backhand serve, um, defenders don't necessarily... Um, try to win points directly off the serve. 
And do you think that's not... a mistake? Uh, sometimes. Um, I mean, it's not like they're giving the way, the point away either. Um, they're still they're still generating some good spin and setting things up for themselves, but they're they're using the backhand serve because they can uh, position themselves more centrally, and then they're ready for the attack uh, attacking ball if it comes straight away. So, if they're doing the pendulum serve, for example, from the forehand corner, it's much further to for them to get around and into their more central position that they use as a defender um, to, to make that next ball. So, um, yeah, so that's why I think uh, defenders tend to use the backhand serve more. As I said, they can still generate enough spin. Um, they can place the ball well enough, um, but uh, they don't need to necessarily set up the attack uh, for themselves all that often. Yeah, that makes sense. And then... Um... Why do you think there's not many left-handed choppers? I think uh, Daniel uh, mentions in his uh, in his question in his extended question. Um, I think it's just a small subset, you know. So the number of defenders isn't very many, and then the number of left-handers isn't many. So um, so the number of defenders that are left-handers um, are even less. So I think that's the main reason. I don't think there's any uh, any. Uh, psychological or neurological um, explanation for it. There you go. That sounds very mathematical, Alois. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. You know how much I like my maths, Jeff. <laughs> Indeed. Indeed. That's uh, So, you know, maybe we should bring back, um, you know, the numbers segment. Um, or not. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, probably not. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, good question, Daniel. Um, next up is one from Leopoldo, who says, are pro veterans like Samsonov still improving, or are their skills diminishing faster than they can improve? Interesting question. Well, you know, um, Samsonov did make the semi-finals of the Olympics uh, this year, um, so you know he's sort of thrown things into chaos, really. Um, I mean, he, in theory, you're right. You know, I mean, they, the the skills should be diminishing. Um, or certainly the physical ability should be diminishing. But I think Samsonov, for one, plays a very, a, a much, a, a really sensible um, game, utilizing utilizing what he's got. So he's not trying to run around the court and um, and make forehands from everywhere or or make big uh, big strokes from both sides. He plays a very efficient game. So that's why I think a player like Samsonov can keep going for a long time. Um, Waldner was the same. Waldner played so efficiently that, you know, he could he could continue playing well um, to a longer age. It'd be interesting to, with players like Ma Long, um, for example, you know, that are so dynamic and, 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 and really um, rely on their power. Um, same with Zhu Zin, um, you know, how how long can those legs keep going and, and propelling him around to make forehands from all over the court? So I think it depends a lot on your game style um, and, you know, how efficient your game is as well as, as to whether, whether you still can improve uh, with age. Certainly the veterans... Uh, you know, as you get older, you start to be wiser, and your and your your game sense and your tactical knowledge will improve. And also, I think psychologically, you improve a lot um, as you get older. You know, everything's not so much of a drama; it's just it becomes more of another match, um, and you're able to maintain your 
your emotional levels a bit a little bit better so so those sort of things definitely improve it's more you know the physical and and how um, and can you maintain that enough physical ability to to utilize your game um, as you play it yeah it is interesting isn't it because i think that Skill-wise, like I don't think Samsonov's forehand is has gotten any better in the last, um, you know, ten years. It might be as good as it was, but I don't think it's improving. And if anything, yeah, it, it might be losing something because he's getting older and a bit slower to get into position and stuff. Um, so yeah, in terms of improving their forehands and their, you know, their just table tennis technique, I don't really think they are improving a lot. But like you said, I think where they are improving is probably tactics, um, you know, uh, reading the gameplay, um, just being able to be in position earlier because they're reading things better. Uh, I think those things they can keep improving. And, and where you talked about style, yeah, I guess that improves their longevity rather than their ability to keep improving. Some of my thoughts. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, exactly. And, but but I think the longevity comes from that bounce of maintaining the physical ability, but then improving your tactical and psychological abilities, you know, and then, then putting all of that into a pot and, and seeing um, whether you're going upwards or downwards. Um, and, you know, certainly uh, the the runs are on the board. Samson has made his first Olympic uh, semifinal um, in 2016. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's so impressive, isn't it? Um, yeah, he just keeps on going. And like you said, there's been a lot of table tennis players that have uh, gone on into, you know, late 30s and still had really good results, like uh, Jean-Michel Save, Jorgen Persson, um, yeah, Waldner, Samsonov. It, it seems to be a sport where it definitely is possible to stay at a really high level even into your late 30s. Yeah, that's right. As, as long as you're playing um, a less physical game, I think, um, you know, and is it, is it why a lot of the Chinese retire earlier? Um, I think that's one thing. I mean, certainly they, they started an earlier age, so so their bodies have, have already been through a lot more uh, by, the t- by the time they reach their, you know, late 20s. But, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's an interesting question. I, I really like that one. Yeah, certainly is. Good question, Leopoldo. All right, Alois, well, that wraps up episode 275 of the Ask the Coach show, the the audio podcast version, and um, I hope everyone enjoys it. Um, We'll put it up on iTunes and on our blog, so um, take a look, and as always, give us any feedback, and um, yeah, make sure you check out pingskills.com. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and thank you, Alloys. Thanks, Jeff, and, uh, yeah, and uh, hope you enjoyed the, the episode uh, out there, guys, and, yeah, let us know. Give us a bit of feedback. Excellent. Thanks, everyone. Catch you next time. Bye.